session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest books or topics for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number, 310-441-0555. Happy Canada Day to all of our friends celebrating north of the border. Hope you enjoyed the holiday. And related to that, this Wednesday will be 4th of July here in the United States, so I won't be doing a live show then so just a programming note and before i get started with the book of the week from this past week i wanted to announce the book for next week or that i'll talk about next week and that is social by matthew lieberman social why our brains are wired to connect by matthew lieberman and actually uh dr lieberman is a professor at ucla and I remember I sat in his class for one day, but I remember it didn't fit my schedule, so I couldn't stay in that class. But it was a very popular class, his social psychology class. I don't know if he still teaches that, but I'm looking forward to reading his book and sharing it with you next week. But let's come to the book for this past week that I'll talk about tonight. It is Incognito by David Eagleman, Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain. And this was a really interesting book um, looking at how much of our brain activity and our thinking and what's going on happens without our awareness. Or another way of putting that, uh, how little of our experience and what's going on in our brain is conscious. We are, or we are conscious of it. And that iceberg analogy that is attributed to Freud is very true. When you see an iceberg, you see a little bit above the surface, but there's so much that is deeper below, which you can't see. And our brains are in a way the same way. Very little of it is conscious. So much more of it is unconscious and completely out of our awareness. And this is actually a very good thing. And he talks about in the book that sometimes when we find that we're actually not as aware of what's going on or there's so much more to us than we don't understand. People can be unsettled by that thought. But it's actually a very good thing because our brains are doing so much all the time that it's actually good for us to not be conscious or it's not really possible for us to be conscious of all of it all the time. Uh, as I'm talking, my body is doing so many things completely out of my conscious awareness or control, which are very needed and necessary for me to survive. And even things like breathing, until you actually think about them and bring them into your awareness, you're almost always not conscious of it. Um, In a related note, this is why things like mindfulness and meditation can be good to help us get awareness of certain things that can be helpful to us because our breathing actually can have a big impact on our mood and how we're feeling. Uh, And this, this is why it can be so valuable and important. But Overall, we know that our brains are doing so much 
out of our awareness. And even me saying that and you hearing that, you probably think, okay, that makes sense. But we sometimes can forget how little we are aware of or how often we think we know what's going on when we actually don't. Um, he points out even things like when someone says, oh, I came up with a great idea. Well, what does that mean? And usually, even though we think we just in that moment came up with something, what really is happening is that behind the scenes, our brain has been thinking about something or lots of things have been going on. And then now it comes to your mind as an idea. And uh, that's a lot more complicated than what we think of just, I've come up with something in that moment. So it's interesting how he goes through various aspects of thinking to show how so much more is going on than we actually think. Uh, a very interesting one, starting with our senses. Now, the way we tend to think of our senses, like sight, hearing, um, taste, uh, feeling, tactile, is that it's just picking up what's out there in the natural world and taking it in. That we just have these instruments that take in what's going on on the outside. But he shows through a variety of uh, experiments and studies that that really isn't the whole picture, no pun intended. What really is going on is there's an interplay with things that are out there, but our brains are almost predicting what's out there and matching that prediction with what is going on on the outside. That's why there are so many different types of optical illusions because our brain is doing things to make sense of the world or it's used to seeing things in a certain way. And sometimes people who can create these optical illusions find ways of fooling the brain in what it's doing. So, for example, he has images of colors next to each other, and the way the colors are placed, you would swear that the colors are getting light to dark from right to left, for example. But it's really just the positioning of the colors that tricks your brain to see it in that way. And when you isolate each band of colors, you see that each band is actually just one solid color. That's very interesting. So we see that as much as we'd like to think that we use our senses just to take in things, from the world, there's much more of an interplay going on in our brains to make that happen. So you don't just see what is out there. There's your brain also doing some things in the process. Um, so for example, when you think you are just seeing a whole scene in front of you, you might not realize that your brain is filling in some parts. Uh, this is very um, obvious when we do things that identify the blind spot that we all have. So our, our eyes has the retina, but the retina has the optic nerve. And in that part, there aren't sensory um, cells to take in vision, but we don't really notice that spot because the brain is very good at filling that in. So as much as we think it's just a one-way street, it's really going both ways. So it's not just bottom up where you see something and then whatever's out there gets seen inside your brain, but your brain is also playing a part in the image that you create inside your own head, which is pretty amazing. Um, so the brain and the way we sense things, we see that it's not one thing. Also, the way we even think about things is not just we have one thought at a time or one thinking system at a time. Um, as he puts it, it's kind of like we have a team of rivals borrowing from President Lincoln's cabinet, where there was a team of rivals, people with differing opinions that would all talk 
and try to come to the best conclusion, our brain at times can be a team of rivals. And we've all experienced that before. For example, he uses an example of when you are offered chocolate cake and there's a part of you that wants to eat healthy, but a part of you that wants to enjoy in the moment the taste of the cake. And then it's kind of a battle that goes on between you. Um, He kind of compares it to like a parliament or Congress that's fighting back and forth and one side wins and by wins determines your conscious behavior or the action that you actually take. But we have this kind of argument happening within us, which is interesting because he brings up issues of even identity, like who am I? Because who's arguing with whom in that case when I'm arguing with myself? And in a way, there's like more than one person within me or who am I? I'm really all of those things together within me. There is a multitude. There is all these aspects of who I am having an argument. Or he talks about when you get mad at yourself, who's getting mad at whom there? In a way, it's you and you, but it can almost seem like two aspects of you. And there's been different ways that people have talked about different aspects of you. Um, with Freud, we have the id, ego, and superego. In transactional analysis, you have the parent, adult, and child. But there's different ways that people have also conceptualized this, but this idea that there's more than one you happening at a given time, which is quite interesting but quite true. And so even this who am I issue or question becomes a little bit more complicated than we think. He also has a very interesting chapter, and I think it's one of the things he specializes in, looking at neuroscience and law and how um, very often neuroscience or psychology, psychiatry is used as a defense in court cases. And it does sometimes change the ways that we can view something or something that has been a crime that has been committed or action that has been committed. He shares the story of what happened um, in Austin, Texas in August 1st, 1966, where Charles Whitman, who was 25 years old, went to the University of Texas Tower and he started shooting people and he killed 13 people other than himself and 33 others were wounded. Not only that, um, he had killed his mother and wife before the shooting and he'd written a suicide note of sorts that was later found that showed that he was really troubled with how he was feeling. Now, most people hearing that are going to think this guy's a monster, he's a horrible person, And of course, he definitely committed a horrific act, Um, but he himself was so surprised by the changes he was observing in himself that in his suicide note, he asked to be evaluated. He asked that an autopsy be performed to see if something was going on with his brain. And sure enough, when they did the autopsy, they found that there was a tumor about the diameter of a nickel uh, in his brain. And they think that this very likely led to the changes that he experienced uh, in himself that were so confusing to him and confusing to the people around him who saw him as a good person and someone who would never do something like this. So when we hear that aspect that he had this tumor that was pushing up against parts of his brain and changing his behavior, it does make us think, okay, well, how guilty is he of the crime? How much is he to blame? And as he talks about in the book, is that really even the right question? How much is he to blame? But it does tend to change our perspective of what happened when we realize he had a brain tumor that was causing significant changes in his brain. And so you start to think, okay, well, then maybe we should be paying attention to the differences that people have in their brains and the impacts it could have 
on their behavior. Because is it fair to measure everyone in the same way if people have different biologies or neurologies and things happening in their brain? Is that fair? Um, And then he shares another interesting uh, trait that he really presents in a good way. But he says um, there is a gene or a particular set of genes which increases your probability of committing a violent crime by 882%. So if you have these set of genes, you're actually 882% more likely to commit a violent crime than people who don't have that gene. So now when you hear that, you think that something makes you that much more likely to commit a violent act. Does that mean that we should be more sympathetic when it comes to punishing someone like that, that they should not be punished because they're so much more likely based on what's going on in their brain or these set of genes that they've been born with. So is that fair? And I was reading this, I was like, wow, that seems kind of interesting. I I don't know what we should do, but I was in a way having some sympathy that, well, maybe we should think about this. And then he, he puts it in a very nice way. He presents it in this order where he talks about this set of genes and he shares some statistics. And then he ends the section by saying, by the way, as regards that dangerous set of genes, you've probably heard of them. They are summarized as the Y chromosome. If you're a carrier, we call you a male. So basically all he was saying was that men were this much more likely to commit these violent crimes than women were. But when he presented in that way, it made me kind of pause and think, huh, I wonder if we should treat people differently. But when you hear it's male and female, most of us don't think, well, males should be given leniency when it comes to violent acts that they commit. We tend not to think that at all. Um, but it was interesting that he presented it that way and made me think of uh, some different things. But then there are people that have genes that make them more likely to be violent or if someone has antisocial personality disorder, they're much more likely to be violent and to commit uh, crimes. But we tend not to think that that's okay. But we realize that there's a lot more going on and even understanding who we are and who someone is, it's hard to differentiate someone from their biology. If someone has schizophrenia, uh, what is their personality? A lot of us would think, well, if you take away the psychosis, if you take away the illness, there's a different personality under there, and there probably is, but how do we tease those things apart? What's really there? Or if someone's depressed, without the depression, they might be different, but who are they? And in a way, um, we are all the average of ourselves on different days, if you want to put it that way. If you're married to someone, you know that there's some days they've been really good and some days not so good. Good to you, good in how they've been, their mood, all sorts of things. There's fluctuations. There's a different us. Within each of us, there is a multitude. We aren't just one person. Um, And in this book, Incognito by David Eagleman, he goes into detail in various ways of showing us that we really don't know ourselves pretty much at all. And even if we think we know why we think something, he talks about that in some chapters, we don't really know why or when we have an opinion. And I've talked before about how a lot of political or moral uh, decisions that we come to, we tend to think that it's because of rational thought that we've gotten to that place. But very often it's an emotional reaction or reaction we have to the situation or scenario. And then we ad hoc come up with ways of explaining why we think that way. And so we think it's the reasoning that got us there, but really it's the reaction that got us there. So also um, he points out how we tend to be a lot more emotional than we think we are. We think we're always being rational, but the emotional brain, if you want to call it that, 
is playing a big part. And really, there isn't just one emotional brain and one rational brain. There really is a bunch of things happening at the same time. He uses the analogy of the brain. Most people think of it as an assembly line. So, for example, to see something, something hits your retina, goes through this part of your optic nerve and goes to the, let's say, occipital lobe, and then you see something. But that's not really the case. He says it's not an assembly line. It's more like a marketplace where lots of things are going back and forth and there's exchanges happening um, and there's, in a way, chaos happening in that way that there's not really just one straightforward way that things go. And because of that, our experience is made up of all these things happening at the same time. And a lot of it happening a lot out of our awareness completely or most of it happening completely out of our awareness. So uh, I really did enjoy this book, Incognito, by David Eagleman, The Secret Lives of the Brain, because it did, um, once again, show me how mu- little we know about ourselves and although we're learning so much about the brain and how it operates and what's happening on microscopic levels we still don't understand so much and have so much left to do so it's a very interesting read if you have not read it already incognito by david eagleman and again the book for this week is social why our brains are wired to connect by matthew lieberman all right we've reached our first commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's bring on a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hi. Hi, thanks for calling. Yes, thank you for answering our phone calls. My and pleasure. Being amazingly <laughs> helpful to all of us, uh, Iranian and uh, other people from my different pleasure. countries. It's my pleasure. And thank thank you. to your dad. Yes. That raised an amazing son like <laughs> you and himself. Thank you for everything. Thank Dr. You. Farid, I um, have a uh, question that I want to make sure that I let, uh, you know, this session be heard by other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what uh, do you think about, because there are still some people who believe that when a child does something wrong, uh, as young as one year, or three years, I'm talking about two children, who one is a one-year-old girl and the other one is a three-year-old boy, that uh, the parents uh, believe uh, culturally and religiously, I, I think religiously, I'm not sure about the religious part, that they, we need to uh, spank kids at that young age uh, in order for them as they grow up they listen to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, physical abuse. Sure. Well, I'm sure you already know what I think, and based even on the end where you called it physical abuse, it's pretty clear where you stand on the issue. But um, yeah, you know, you're you're right. I mean, I think in we call it sometimes traditional parenting can involve physical punishment as a part of it. But as you're saying, it's not just people in the past. I still see it all the time. People posting things online. Um, you know, my parents spanked me or beat me, and because of that, I have something called respect for people. Or, um, you know, when they see someone misbehaving, they're thinking, oh, that kid didn't get spanked as a child, and that's why they're acting out this way. Someone needed to spank them. And I very much disagree with all of that. To begin with, the research that has been done on spanking, even not just physical abuse, physical abuse. Um, I think it's very, very clear that that's negative. And it just, you know, any kind of hitting that's hard, that's leaving a mark, that's bruising, 
um, it's just definitely harmful. But even some people say, okay, that's not, that's bad, but spanking is good and you need that. And I very much disagree with that. And the research that has come out on spanking shows that it's not beneficial and has lots of negative outcomes. Um, and there's a lot of things, even in what you said, specifically to the family you're talking about, if you, you do talk to them, we need to spank them. And the second part was so that they listen to us. And exactly. this is uh, also, in a way, we, if you want to, since I already used the term traditional parenting, that's another thing that people think is that you have to make your kids listen to you all the time and do whatever it is you say. And that's not what a parent, as a parent, you're supposed to do. Now, you are an authority in the household and you do have sometimes things that you need to make sure get done ways that you have to run the household so it's not that you you have a complete democracy in the house i don't agree with that there has to be some level where the parents are responsible have the authority take um, the initiative to take care of things help set rules and boundaries more than likely if they want to make it beneficial with the children but they have to make sure those are in place so there has to be that but at the same time the idea that kids are supposed to be uh, servants or obedient 100% to their parents and that's a healthy child and a healthy parent-child relationship I completely disagree with that too so that motivation that I need to do this to get my kids to listen I already disagree with the motivation or I'm disagreeing with the result you're going for is not good your kids are not just supposed to listen to you no matter what that's not the right thing. Now, another thing people bring up, as I mentioned, is that you have to be spanked or hit to respect someone. But punishment and being spanked doesn't create genuine respect. It creates fear and behavior motivated at avoiding punishment because of that fear. So if you teach a child to study or else I'm going to hit you, they don't learn that studying is good. They just learn that I should study to avoid getting hit. It doesn't have a benefit itself. It has no intrinsic value. I just have to avoid the punishment so I will do it. Not because I like it. And because of that, if they can get out of studying, if they can fake the studying, or once the punishment is removed, whether they're old enough or things change, they're not going to want to do it anymore because it was just done to avoid punishment. And if you respect someone or what people, it looks like respect, a lot of people think that a dictator looks like they have a lot of respect in their country, um, but they don't. They just have people who are afraid of them. And the second they can do anything to hurt them, they will hurt that leader. And we've seen that happen time and time again across the world and across history where an evil dictator who was using their power to get what looked like respect, but really just using fear to make people listen to them and give them what they wanted. As soon as there was some cracks and they could take over them, we see it happen all the time and they disrespect the person uh, to the strongest degree because there was never a relationship that was actually based on genuine respect it was based out of fear fear of punishment so and actually i say this to parents all the time even when it's not just to abuse but in the way you run your house you almost have to make sure you're not right running a dictatorship because things are set up in a home or with parents and kids to to definitely steer towards that where the parents you know, you see it all the time, even in minimal ways. They say, nope, we can't go here because I said so. And sometimes there's no reason or logic. It's just what we can call a power trip or the person wants to have the power. But I've seen in public even parents having these power trips where they just want to have control. It's not really because of some reason. And so as a parent, you have to make sure you don't 
become a dictator in your home. Again, it doesn't mean you're not the authority. You still have to be the authority and have some level of responsibility and power and setting of boundaries and things of that sort. But you have to make sure you don't become a dictator because, first of all, that's not fair to your kids, but also you're not going to create uh, a healthy relationship or healthy kids because they're just going to live out of fear, out of avoiding punishment, not after going, not for going after good things. Um, so if a parent thinks, look at that kid, he respects his mom so much because he's so afraid of them and he does anything she says the second she says it, that's not genuine respect. And actually, if you want to create a relationship that's based in respect, you have to respect that person. So if you want your kids to genuinely respect you, you have to show them respect and violating someone's physical body by hitting them is not showing respect and treating them with respect. So you're not teaching them even how to create a relationship that is based in respect and having genuine respect. Because when I genuinely respect people, even if it has no impact on me, I don't want to hurt them. Even if it has no benefit or no detriment to me, I'm not going to want to hurt someone else if I respect people. But when you create relationships where the more powerful person hits and uses aggression and violence to get their way, you teach them that when you're weaker, avoid punishment, and when you're stronger, use violence and aggression to get your way to get what you want. It doesn't teach them how to have genuine respect for themselves and for other people. It just teaches them that this is a world of hierarchy. If you're the more powerful one, use it to your advantage. If you're the less powerful one, just bow to the authority and say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you're right, I'm wrong, to avoid punishment. But it doesn't show a genuine respect for you, for them, or for how you relate to one another. So to me, it's very clear that hitting your kids is not the way to get them to become good people, to help them to have a good relationship with you. And again, if your mindset is, I need to hit my kids so that they listen to me, you're already starting off on the wrong foot by thinking your job is to get your kids to listen and obey you uh, every moment. That's right. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, also, um, I have to share a little thing with you. My daughter, who now has two children mm -hmm. and is married to American guy, and um, I never, I never thank her never ever mm -hmm. and uh, now because of the influence of uh, uh, the culture or the thinking of the man that he's married um, whatever is happening uh, between them uh, he tells her that the reason you are like this or you um, so-called um, we say loose or it in English mm -hmm. is because your mom never never hit you and uh, so my daughter who got married when he, she was extremely young and I was 100% against that marriage for many good reasons I uh, she she now is turning to learn and does the same thing and just mm -hmm. my heart bleeds for these two kids yeah, so I, I want to make sure um, because I came in the middle of the, your show um, to say who you are as Dr. Farid Holakui, a wonderful man with a wonderful father and very helpful to society, American and, uh, I mean, every society and specifically Iranian. 
um, that you are a clinical uh, licensed um, <laughs> psychologist and um, and this is your opinion when it comes to hitting kids uh, or hitting anybody. Yeah, well, just hitting anyone. My guess is you're saying all of that because you want to play this for for your uh, daughter exactly. and her husband, which you can do. But, you know, you have to be ready for a few things. One is, um, you know, I think there's science behind it, so it's not just a matter of opinion. But still, they might, you know, you're the grandmother and they're going to be the parents, so at the end of the day, they, they're going to decide what to do. But I could understand, and I'm with you, on that, that you don't want them to do that to their kids. Cause I think it is harmful, and I hope uh, they will look at the research. And unfortunately, uh, with these things, people feel very strongly about them, and I think the word is really feel, because, again, the research can show otherwise, but they still will believe what they think is right, and so they'll discount the research. I've even seen that online. People say, oh, what do the scientists know, or what do they do in their lab? And, you know, and it's not about labs. We're looking at research of people, and it's... Um, obviously going to be correlational. You can't get people and say, okay, these 100 people spank your kids, these 100 kids don't spank your kids, and let's measure them in 18 years or something. But still, there seems to be very strong evidence that it is hurtful. And to me, it's very clear that it's hurtful to them. And I hope that they'll do some research and look at things and and come to their own conclusions. But I did want to mention something because you brought up that word spoiled. And for me, being spoiled, usually it's when we see kids that we think they want too much of uh, things that they don't need. They become greedy or they become, um, they become too soft or don't want to face any challenges. And so to begin with, usually the type of spoiled, for example, a kid who wants 50 toys or too many things, the way I always have seen that when I've looked at kids and looked at even adults is it's usually when they're trying to fill up a hole with something that does not fill that. For example, they're trying to, instead of love, they want to get toys because they're not getting enough love. So what I've seen, the kids that get enough genuine love don't tend to become spoiled because they don't feel a need to fill something up within them that feels empty. And adults do this too. We might might even buy ourselves things or you might use drugs or other things to fill up these, um, these spaces, these holes that we have within ourselves that are coming from pain, from a lack of love. So when a kid gets enough love, they don't become spoiled. Now, there is something that we see uh, a movement towards coddling children, and I'm not in favor of that. And so something I talk about is uh, there's a philosophy that I uh, coined the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, where a lot of parents think that my job as a parent is just to make sure my child experiences no pain or discomfort of any kind. And anything I can do to get in the way of their pain, avoid the pain, prevent the pain, I'm supposed to do. But unfortunately, they even avoid things like natural consequences to their actions, which is not healthy, which is not good. So if your child doesn't study or doesn't do their work and they get a bad grade, you shouldn't go argue with the teacher and say, you know, getting a D makes my child sad, they should get an A. You should recognize if your child did D-level effort, they deserve a D, and they have to learn from that. So uh, the the arguments most people have against things like spanking is they think that you go to the other extreme and you completely coddle the child and you're saying nothing bad or no bad experience or no bad feeling should ever come up for this child, which is not healthy. And some parents are doing a lot of that and think that, well, something made my kids sad, I have to go take away that sadness or change the scenario or go to the school or change schools or sue the school. And I'm not in favor of that at all. So I think having firm parenting that has rules and boundaries
boundaries is good, but you can have that in a relationship that's based on love with your children rather than fear. So I always think you can discipline or develop discipline in a child much better through love rather than fear. And fear is in a way the easier route because it just takes some spankings and hittings and using threats and violence to get it to happen. Disciplining through love takes a lot more time and effort, but is much more meaningful and valuable and leads to better uh, outcomes for the child and for the relationships that you have. And so I hope that all parents and all people, even as a society, we choose to discipline through love rather than fear. But I know that many people still think that fear is the right route and will go that way. Thank you, Doctor, yeah. so much. You are amazing. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you for calling. I appreciate that. One more uh, question, just a short time. What is the most effective way that you think it's uh, better to deal with children who are already, you know, for many reasons, uh, they don't uh, they don't listen? I mean, as young as one year and three years old. What's the well, I mean, the the th- you know, like I said, they're not supposed to just listen to you, which I know... You know, parents want, and I get it. Like if you're a parent and you're trying to get the kids out the door because you have to make it to an appointment and one of them's throwing their shoes off and the other one is not, you know, resisting to put their clothes on and the other one just went to the bathroom, you know, it's tough. So I know it's very easy to just sit here and say, don't ever get mad at your kids or don't ever get upset or angry, which is not going to happen. You're going to get angry at your kids sometimes. So I'm not trying to promote something that is unrealistic because that's not possible. Now you want to strive towards treating them the best way. But that's an aspiration. It's not something that you're going to be perfect at. Um, so again, that idea that they're going to listen to you all the time, no matter what, is not something that is reasonable or realistic to have as an expectation. You have to understand that children are going to have a mind of their own and you need them and want them to truly have that mind of their own. It's frustrating when it disagrees with you or especially disagrees with something you want to do or feel you need to do in the moment and you get stressed out and and all of that. I understand that. Um, But if you have a much better relationship with your kids, they're much more likely to listen to you. If they're uh, they don't feel good if they feel resentment towards you. They're much more likely to defy you and to try to rebel against you. So in a way, they're more likely to not listen to you or to become manipulative if you mistreat them, if you make them afraid of you. So again, it can seem like the simple way. If I use threats and violence and anger, it's going to make them listen to me. But it's a short-term win. But the overall battle of parenting, it's going to make things a lot harder. And your kid's going to find ways to defy you in bigger and better ways in their mind because they're going to be angry with you, understandably. So um, to get your kids to listen to a one-year-old, I mean, you know, there's not much I can say about you You want to, you know, you can try to communicate with them, but they're going to sometimes have literally a mind of their own, which they should have, but they're just not going to listen to you. And a three-year-old, the same kind of thing. But if you can try to communicate with them better and overall have better communication with them, you're much more likely to get them to be more agreeable and there's techniques and things they can look up and I do have to go to a commercial break and I don't want to get into all of that because that's a much bigger question but there's ways you can try to communicate with your child where you work with them you know you say things like hey let's see if we can get your shoes on how quick we can get your shoes on and sometimes kids see through it or they might know and that's okay but you know there's ways you can try to talk to your kids to make it more likely that they're going to uh, be agreeable with you but you have to recognize that this child as is as his or her own person, it's not always going to and is not supposed to just listen to me. That's not really, a child is not my possession. They are their own human being, even if they seem so little and helpless, they're still their own human being. So I can't expect 
that they're just going to listen to me no matter what. Right. Doctor, any book or CDs that you would recommend for, hmm. for this matter with kids? With the kids one, I'm not sure. I'm probably going to do one soon. I'm not, you know, something like Parenting from the Inside Out can help. That's not a bad book by Daniel Siegel that helps in this way. But about communicating with them, um, there's books like Getting to, is it called Getting to? Yes, you know, I'd have to look them up. Maybe I can announce them okay. after the break. Yeah. Sure, no problem. Parenting from the Inside uh, Out. Inside by out. Daniel thank Siegel. Yeah, thank so you for calling. Thank you very sure. much. Have a great night. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, going into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lockwe. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, I was talking with a caller um, who asked about spanking and hitting kids, and, and my thoughts. And I don't think most people were surprised to hear that I'm not in favor of, of hitting children. Um, and as I emphasized with her, I do want to make it clear because I think sometimes people think there's only two ways to parent. Either you're strict, disciplinarian, and you're maybe even hitting your kids, punishing your kids a lot, using threats, using even aggression and violence to get them to listen to you. And and that's one way. And I think the other philosophy, it comes all the way on the other end of the spectrum, which is, um, you know, never let your kids feel any pain or discomfort give them whatever they want, whenever they want, all the time. Don't set any rules or boundaries. Never say no to them ever, no matter what. Give them what they want all the time. And that's the kind of permissive style. But similar to how we can have passive communication and aggressive communication, and neither one of them are good, but the middle road of assertiveness is what we want. With parenting, it's the same thing, that being harsh and using fear and punishment and aggression and physical violence is not the solution or the path. And neither is giving your kid just what they want all the time, no matter what. And so I talked a bit about both, but more about the negative aspects of the harsh parenting of the the spanking and the hitting, which again, there's lots of research showing how negative even spanking is. Because again, a lot of people thought, okay, hitting is bad and physical abuse is bad, but spanking is good. We need that. But the research is showing us that that's not the case. Um, and I think another funny thing about, well, not really funny, actually, I guess nothing about hitting a child is going to be funny, but in the mindset, for me, it's, it's almost comical to think that to teach a child not to hit, you should hit the child. It does not make any sense to me at all. You know, don't hit your brother, and so I'm going to hit you to teach you that hitting your smaller brother is not right. All you're really doing is reinforcing the idea that when you're bigger, hit the smaller person or even thing if it's an animal. So it's not really teaching them much about right and wrong. You're just reinforcing the wrong thing. Um, but going to the other extreme, I think there is something we have to be careful about, this idea that my role as a parent, as I said, is to have this pain prevention parenting philosophy that I'm supposed to make sure my child feels no pain or discomfort. And this is why um, they have soccer leagues where they don't keep score because they don't want anyone to have to suffer the pain of defeat. And they do lots of other things to make sure no kid ever gets harmed or feels anything bad. And this comes from partially this mindset or idea that many people have that feeling any kind of pain or discomfort or anything negative is a really, really horrible and bad thing when that's not the case. Um, and I'm not just going to say, oh, we need sad feelings to know how good happiness is. 
which there's maybe a little bit of truth to that, but more it's that there's something valuable itself in anger, sadness, pain that we experience in different ways. It's not just a negative thing or it's not just positive because it makes good things seem even better. That's not what I believe. That's not what I think is true because growth only happens through discomfort and pain. You have to face some kind of challenge, some kind of discomfort to grow. The analogy I always use is when it comes to muscles. If you want to go work out, if you only work out until it's about to hurt or until you're about to feel some kind of pain or discomfort, you're never going to get stronger. The way muscles grow is there's microscopic tears that then rebuild and become bigger and stronger. It needs that pain to grow. And psychologically, we are the same way. Now, the challenge can become this sometimes thin line of pain uh, that leads to growth and pain that leads to damage. Because someone might be in a relationship that has domestic violence and says, oh, I'm feeling a lot of pain in this relationship. That means I'm growing a lot. No, that's the pain of damage. Someone is disrespecting you, treating you in a way that you don't deserve and constantly doing that and staying in that relationship is actually damaging you. What you're actually going to experience is for someone who gets comfortable in a domestically violent relationship, leaving is going to feel painful. Leaving is going to feel uncomfortable very often. And we know it's so hard for people in those kinds of relationships to often leave the relationship, but that's going to be the pain that's going towards growth. And it will be a difficult path, but that's the one. So as a parent, even sometimes you're going to have a challenge of knowing, well, where's that line? And it's not always going to be so clear, but you have to always ask yourself in when you try to prevent the pain, or if you think of that, or if you see your child facing something difficult, is this pain of damage or that leads to damage or is this pain that leads to growth? So if your child is thirsty, I'm not saying don't give them water for a day so they learn what it's like or to give them that pain. Um, no, that's actually going to probably teach them that they can't rely on you, they can't rely on people and a bunch of other negative things. But sometimes with things like schoolwork, this is a very common one. Uh, you work with a lot of parents and you hear it and every parent has probably gone through this. Their kid comes to them panicked. 11 p.m. at night saying, I've had this project and it's all due tomorrow and I haven't done anything yet. And the parent has this huge response and they don't know what to do. Do I help the child completely and get it all done? Or do I let the child face some consequence for what they went through? And it's, it's not black or white because I think you maybe can help the child to a degree um, and still that could be okay. But you have to be careful if you're doing all the work for them and you hear stories of parents working on the project after the kid falls asleep, that to me is going to be hurting the kid more than helping your kid. But you're going to face a lot of these types of challenges. And always the question should be, is this pain that goes towards damage or pain that goes towards growth? And of course, this is very true in the parenting realm. So we have to be aware of that. I, I don't at all believe in coddling kids and then teenagers and adults so that nothing uncomfortable happens to them. That's not going to make them stronger. It's not going to make them prepared to face the world. And they're going to live in a world that's not catered to them in every moment. It's not realistic. It doesn't prepare them to face the world, to face challenges. You want them to recognize that challenges aren't something that have to be avoided because that's what you do when you take away all the pain, all the discomfort. You teach them that those things are negative and should be avoided no matter what. Once you feel that feeling, run the other way. But guess what? Any path towards success, towards fulfillment is going to involve pain and discomfort. You have to sometimes work hard 
when playing is going to seem a lot easier and more fun. And, uh, you know, based on this book, Incognito, that I talked about today, which talked about the different factions in your brain, that emotional and immediate gratification part of your brain is going to win a lot of times for whoever you are, but especially if you live in a world where pain is always to be avoided, well, then you're always going to take the easier route that feels better in the moment. So if you genuinely want your child to be successful and to live a fulfilled life, you have to get them ready that they're going to face some pain and discomfort. It's not something that has to be avoided at all costs, no matter what. It's something sometimes very good. It's a part of life that actually means you're doing the right thing. Very often, the hardest thing and the right thing are the same thing. And so we have to be prepared to teach our children not to be afraid of pain and discomfort. And first, that means we have to be not afraid of that. And parents, very often, because they can't tolerate their own sadness or pain or negative feelings, they try to make sure their kids never experience it. So first, you have to become okay with those feelings yourself. It's okay to be sad. It doesn't last forever, and it's not a horrible, horrible thing. It's okay. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to face challenges. We have to become okay with that and then instill that in our children and help build that resilience in them and that toughness to withstand whatever comes their way because we know life is going to be unfair sometimes. Life is difficult. It's going to be tough. And if they want to succeed and if they want to live a fulfilled life, they're going to have to be ready to face challenges, to face discomfort, to do the thing that doesn't feel good in the moment sometimes to give themselves something better. So just to use the philosophy that give your child whatever feels better in the moment is going to be doing them a disservice. So we don't need to be fully punitive and punishing and use violence and aggression to help raise our kids. And we definitely don't need to coddle them and say that my child should never experience any kind of pain or discomfort. There definitely is a middle road that's going to be much healthier for them and for your relationship with them, which we have to find and try to walk down that road. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show again no show wednesday because of fourth of july hope everyone enjoys celebrating that but i'll be with you next week again monday night to talk about the book social why our brains are wired to connect by matthew lieberman all right thank you to everyone listening out there in the caller and to amir here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fatty jalak have a wonderful night mm-hmm.